I think soft power in the traditional sense of the word really relates to this power of attraction. And there are certainly elements of that with regards to how people and countries around the world view China. Hello, I'm Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to bring you our fourth episode of China Uncovered, part of our broader China Transparency Project. The project and this series of podcasts are pushing for greater data-heavy transparency for the Chinese Communist Party by highlighting the work of our friends. For this episode, we're talking about the Chinese Communist Party's undermining of media freedom and use of coercive forms of soft power. Joining us today is Sarah Cook, Freedom House's Research Director for China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Prior to joining Freedom House, Sarah translated famed Chinese human rights lawyer Gao Shisheng's memoirs and served twice as a delegate to the United Nations Human Rights Commission in Geneva. She graduated with her bachelor's from Pomona College and a master's from the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. I've long admired Sarah's diverse work on China, but have repeatedly referenced her work over the years on the state of religious freedom in China. Today, however, she joins us to share about her 2020 special report, Beijing's Global Megaphone, as well as several other important reports that have been produced by Freedom House, including their annually released Freedom in the World report, as well as the Freedom in the Net report. Sarah, thank you so much for being willing to lend insight into the more pernicious side of China's soft power efforts. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to the to the podcast. Well, we're just delighted that you could join us today. So, um, Sarah, can you share about the focus of your work at Freedom House and perhaps highlight um, some of the reports that you've been working on that relate to soft power? Sure. So um, the China research portfolio at Freedom House, kind of, there's a few different buckets to it. Uh, one of it is the China Media Bulletin, which is actually a monthly digest tracking more qualitatively uh, what's happening in terms of media and internet freedom, both inside China, but also the way in which the Chinese Communist Party and other related actors affect media outside of China. So we always have a Beyond China section. And that was one of the places where I really started to see how much was happening and to really monitor and track and see commonalities across different countries, different types of media, um, and, and so forth. And then the other aspect is um, has been a series of special reports. Some of them, as you mentioned, related to, to events inside China, like religious persecution and resistance, but, but two of them have been related to the Communist Party's influence on media outside of China. Uh, one was in 2013 called The Long Shadow of Chinese Censorship, and then more recently, the 2020 report um, Beijing's global megaphone. And it was actually really interesting to kind of look at that space back in 2013 and then kind of revisit it in 2020 and even revisit it shortly after I had worked on another uh, paper in like 2017 or 2018, just to really see how fast this space was moving um, and how much um, you're seeing more influence from uh, China and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and then I think one of the things that actually has us begun to flow from that uh, second report um, in January 2020 is actually a new project we're hoping to launch soon, uh, which is going to be using that as kind of the basis um, for a methodology to do a set of country case studies looking at both China's footprint um, and also resilience factors. And we're going to be starting to do some different country case studies and hopefully actually from that create a data set 
that allows more cross-country comparisons um, and even within a particular country, a better sense of kind of the strengths and weaknesses with regard to the, this particular form of far, a far, a problematic authoritarian influence. Mm, wow. Well, that gives us, uh, me, as well as our listeners, something to look forward to from Freedom House. But also, um, for our listeners, we'll be happy to link um, many of the reports that Sarah referenced in the notes of the podcast. Um, now, Sarah, a term that I'm really confident is going to come up throughout our entire conversation, especially as we look at the Chinese Communist Party's use and abuse of media, is, of course, soft power. What does soft power mean in the Chinese context? And I'm really curious as to whether or not you think it's even a useful term or if there's another term that better captures the CCP's non-military means of influence. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And to be honest, I often don't like to use the term soft power in context. <laughs> of the Chinese Communist Party's influence. I, I think soft power in the traditional sense of the word as it was coined by, um, by Joseph Nye really relates to this power of attraction. And there are certainly elements of that with regards to how people and countries around the world view China. And that can relate to elements of Chinese culture. It can relate to the way in which people perceive the incredible economic development that has happened in China, the technological development, and I think sometimes it can, you know, some of it is this authoritarian soft power influence insofar as there are very um, particular elements related to China and the way the Communist Party runs China in a very authoritarian manner that then can be proved attractive um, and, and, and the desire to kind of mimic it by, by other uh, countries and governments and officials around the world. But I actually think my sense is that overall, you know, that kind of traditional soft power uh, is both a pretty small proportion of the way in which the Communist Party's influence apparatus works outside of China, um, and actually not the most disconcerting. And so I think when you look at other terms, um, for example, sharp power, uh, that can be valuable when you're looking at some of the grayer areas of the way in which um, influence works. Um, but I actually find the, this kind of set of terms that uh, uh, Australian officials coined of thinking about Chinese Communist Party influence from the perspective of where is it uh, covert uh, or coercive uh, or corrupting. And actually, there's quite a tremendous amount of that happening. I think that's underappreciated. And, you know, the, even that happens along a spectrum. So I think it is kind of useful just generally to maybe think about the way CCP foreign influence um, plays out, whether it's in the media sphere or other spheres, along a spectrum where you have these elements that are more accepted public diplomacy, Chinese state media spreading in kind of very transparent ways where people know that it's Chinese state media. And, you know, the Chinese government and Communist Party want to fund the media to, to set, tell their stories, so to speak. You know, that's their right to do that. I think then you get into like the spectrum that runs through these um, more uh, covert and coercive um, and corrupting elements that, that get to be much trickier and much more problematic. And somewhere in the middle there is kind of this sharp power where there may be something that isn't clearly that directly coercive or necessarily even boarding on the illegal in a particular country, but does involve various elements of, say, behind the scenes economic coercion or just implicit uh, economic incentives that that encourage certain forms of 
um, of censorship for self-censorship, for example. So I think for the most part, my work has really focused more on that end of the spectrum, because I think when we look at the, the costs and the threats that this type of activity poses for freedom of expression outside of China, and even more broadly for elements of, of real democratic institutions, um, that it's really those that are really what you want to home in on. And sometimes the most visible activity isn't necessarily the most problematic or nefarious. So really being able to pinpoint what is the particularly insidious forms of influence and be able to find ways to counter those in a democratic context is, is I think, a useful way of thinking about the way in which this kind of, I wouldn't call it soft power per se, but I would say CCP foreign influence, it's a useful way to think about it. I love your attention to detail and how you broke that down with the, I think it was covert, coercive, or corrupt. I think it adds so much more color to the discussion. And it's so interesting that you mention, you know, these sort of competition even uh, between the terms of soft power or sharp power. These are terms that we're thinking through here at Heritage, even as a part of our broader China transparency work, um, because we think language matters so much and that it matters even in an analytical framework as you think through how to address China and the threat that it poses. So hopefully we'll be able to bring you into that broader conversation that we're planning to have um, in the year ahead. Um, shifting gears slightly, your 2020 report, Beijing's Global Megaphone, you referenced it earlier, highlights the ways in which the Chinese Communist Party is manipulating foreign and domestic media to advance the Chinese Communist Party's priorities. Can you highlight some of the top line themes of that report? Sure. So the report really was looking at the ways in which, you know, obviously, you know, especially this foreign element, right, the way in which the Chinese Communist Party's controls over information that it's honed um, in such a robust way domestically um, are spreading and influencing the news, especially the news and information that people around the world are consuming. And I think one of the main findings to really keep in mind is both the expansion and the sheer scale of this activity and its impact. And so we are in a situation now where hundreds of millions of news consumers all around the world are consuming information coming from, that's been influenced by the Chinese Communist Party and the propaganda department's prerogatives and priorities. In a lot of cases, it's content that's actually been directly created by Chinese state media and been insinuated this way or that way through uh, into mainstream media. In other cases, it's other forms of narratives or types of censorship and incentives that are affecting the coverage. But I think it really is a situation where just in general, no market is too small. So like you see examples from Papua New Guinea to Fiji to small countries in Africa or Latin America, like there really is no market that's too small um, to languages that are spoken by like a few million people um, where you see examples of this happening. So I, I think it really is important to keep in mind that this really is a global issue, which I think is a little different than when you see some of the things that maybe other authoritarian regimes like Iran or Russia are engaged in. It doesn't really have quite the same global reach um, that, that the Chinese Communist Party's influence efforts have. And it, so I think one is just the sheer scale and scope of what's going on, which of course makes monitoring and tracking and documenting it all much more difficult. But I think the other is the expansion. 
And, you know, there's, it's, for a long time, the Chinese government Communist Party have sought to influence media outside of China, especially the Chinese language diaspora media. Well, that really started happening post-1989 when they wanted to shift the support after it had been evident the support from overseas Chinese for the Tiananmen Square protesters and really take regain the upper hand. Um, under Hu Jintao, you saw increased um, investment um, in terms of other languages and the, the international spread of Chinese state media, but really under Xi Jinping, it's taken off. And so I think when you look especially at the last decade, uh, whether it's in terms of the scale or the type of tactics or sophistication or the inroads that they've been able to make, um, you really do have, um, you know, you really do have an expansion. Um, and then I think the other thing, which I think a lot of people have noticed when it comes to the tactics is with China's greater and the Communist Party's greater confidence in terms of its international place, in terms of its economic clout, um, and just in terms of the way in which Xi Jinping runs the Chinese Communist Party, um, much more uh, brazen um, and aggressive tactics. And so I think there are a few things that, that really stood out as trends that we were really looking at this report, you know, not just what happened, say, over the last decade, but really just looking since 2017. Because even in just that time frame, you could really see some changes. Um, and so a few of the things that we, we noted, for example, is that one, uh, tactics that were primarily used in the past to co-opt Chinese diaspora media and suppress critical coverage in overseas Chinese language publications are now being applied more and more, and in some cases with some effect to mainstream media in other languages and countries. Um, I think the other thing is, and this is really much more recent, really since 2019, though it started in 2017, but we've only noticed it since 2019, is more use of kind of Russia-style social media disinformation campaigns and efforts to manipulate global online platforms that you really didn't see Chinese activity in that space um, previously. Um, another is this kind of gaining control over the dissemination and infrastructure in different countries and even initial signs and some very concrete examples of that access being used to manipulate content, either in terms of amplifying certain voices or suppressing others. So I think those are some of the trends in terms of both what's been happening over the last decade, but also really just in the last few years. Yeah, you know, the report also highlights three tools in China's global media influence toolbox. And I think you've touched on some of them a bit, but could you talk about those tools and how they vary in their application and in their influence? One of the ideas with this report was to try to lay out kind of a toolbox and a guide so that whether they're journalists or policymakers in different countries looking at this very multifaceted and actually quite complex system of tactics um, and controls would have some kind of a guide. Uh, and so we really broke the toolbox down uh, into three buckets. Um, one, uh, I would say, is propaganda and disinformation. So when you're looking at propaganda, it's the ways in which the Communist Party and various other kind of proxy entities, um, you know, either it's Chinese state media, other favorable media, media with some ownership stakes, co-productions, this kind of whole spectrum of, um, of possible partners and avenues of dissemination, uh, share content and produce content that really follows the propaganda priorities of the Chinese Communist Party. Again, in some cases, that's Chinese state media insinuating their content directly uh, into other media, which I think is overall more effective uh, and problematic and more covert, you know, less transparent than a situation where someone is actually buying a copy of the China Daily or, buy, or tuning into CGTN directly. Um, and, then, and then again, also within that, this element of the disinformation, 
which has been an effort to, um, from the examples that we see, an effort to amplify certain voices, an effort to uh, spread certain types of, especially demonizing content, say about Hong Kong protesters or other critics of the Communist Party, perceived enemies of the CCP, both inside and outside of, out of, outside of China. Um, so I think that was one bucket. A second bucket was looking at what I would call censorship. And I think that's one of the areas that is more underappreciated. Um, but that's the various ways in which actions by the CCP both inside of China and Chinese security forces, for example, inside China, but also outside of China, create various kinds of carrots and sticks um, that provoke, you know, either directly uh, reduce access to information, say, for journalists to be able to cover certain events in China and then, you know, share it, foreign correspondents, and then share it with their uh, share it with their news consumers outside of China, um, but even just other pressures that are applied by Chinese embassies and threats and intimidation on local journalists in other countries um, that that you know you know create a higher bar for for critical reporting. Um, but I think the other element is this uh, the more the economic dimension, the 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 ownership, um, co-optation of owners, purchase of ownership stakes, um, you know, various kinds of uh, relationships like that that are built, and that we do see them translating into uh, specific examples of censorship, an article being taken down, a journalist being investigated, a slow uh, reduction in certain types of uh, coverage or, or commentary columnists, you know, slowly being squeezed out, um, that, that you really do see that, again, it's something that has happened quite a bit in the Chinese language space, but we're seeing now more and more happening in, in other languages. Um, and, then, um, and then I think the third bucket, which is really actually quite recent, because when I had first started thinking about this space, say four or five years ago, I really wasn't attuned to this, or I don't think it was just happening as much. And that is the, the, the situation of Chinese co government-linked companies, maybe not state-owned, usually they're private companies, but they have clear connections to the Chinese government, uh, really gaining a foothold in the information infrastructure of other countries, and particularly when you're thinking about in terms of content dissemination. So not so much looking at it from the perspective of are they gaining access to user data and the like, but are they being able to be put in a place where they're now the gatekeepers and they can pretty much decide. They can deploy either propaganda and amplification techniques or suppressive censorship techniques um, to really affect the information that news consumers in a particular country or of a particular platform ha have access to. And so we really looked at three spaces. One was digital television. You certainly see that happening in parts of Africa because the Chinese company that's now really has a foothold in the digital television space is now converting that into, especially in their more affordable packages, um, access to Chinese state media and not access to probably the main competitors, which would be CNN and BBC World, for example. Um, and then, you know, other examples related to social media platforms, particularly WeChat and the way in the Chinese diaspora that's really skewed the who has access to that information, who, which news outlets have access to even having WeChat accounts, which um, overseas diaspora critics of the Chinese Communist Party, whether they're able to actually share criticism or news, like specific examples of censorship that happens on that platform and affects those conversations. So I think I would say that was kind of one of the things we were trying to do is really place these different tactics and these different trends in those three buckets of propaganda and disinformation, censorship, and then control over content delivery systems. 
Mm, that's so informative. Thanks for sharing more details about that report in particular. I know that Freedom House also produces other reports that touch on China. And when you and I were chatting before, um, you know, actually recording the podcast, you mentioned a few that I wanted to ask you about. One is freedom in the world. The second is freedom of the net. The third is nations in transition. Could you tell us a little bit more about those reports? Sure. So, so Freedom in the World is really the flagship publication that Freedom House produces, and it is uh, it is more kind of quantitative in the sense that it is a data set um, that really looks at uh, the political rights and civil liberties of pretty much every country in the world. It does cover some other territories. So, for example, we actually have separate reports uh, for Hong Kong um, and Tibet in that in that publication, in addition to China and Taiwan. And basically what it does is it gives scores to countries on their level of freedom. And we do this by having country experts that will go through the methodology and a lot scores. And then we have a various levels of review process. And really part of the exercise is to take more, I would say, kind of qualitative or other types of data sets um, about what's happening in a particular country and apply a score to them under, let's say, the corruption or the freedom of the media um, in order to then have a quantitative set of information um, that you can then use to make both trend analysis over time, but also country comparisons. Um, and on that one, for example, China is rated very much not free and is really at, you know, kind of the lower end of the not free countries, you know, not quite North Korea, though, on political rights, it really <laughs> is. It really is one of the weakest. I mean, I think there's like a score of two or three or something like that out of 40 possible wow. points. On civil liberties, China does a little bit better. But there's definitely, I mean, I've been working at Freedom House since 2007. And, you know, there was definitely, there's been a decline in China's score. There was a bit of an uptick um, for a period of time, I would say around, I think, 2009, 2010. And then under Xi Jinping, there's kind of some of the ground that had been gained was lost again um, on the civil liberties side. Uh, so that's freedom in the world. Um, for freedom on the net, that takes a more specific look at uh, internet and digital freedom. And it specifically looks at kind of the access issues, the kind of content and limits on content and any violations of user rights. Um, and on that one, out of 100 points, I think China gets a 10, uh, with a zero being the worst and, and 100 being the best. And freedom on the net is global, but it doesn't cover every country. It covers 65 countries. And among those 65 countries, China has had the lowest score um, for the last six years in a row. And in particular, because of the limits on content and violations of user rights, because actually when you talk about access and some of the questions in terms of access, you actually have a lot more Chinese people having access as the, the largest you know, uh, population by far of internet users in the world, largest number of people using accessing the internet via the mobile internet. And of course, that creates its own forms of economic leverage for the Communist Party. But I think despite that upper hand, and I would say that edge when it comes to the access element, uh, you still see the, the, the limits on content and the violations of user rights being so severe and so spread out across so many targets and parts of China um, that that really, that really lowers its score. Um, and then, you know, when it, we look at nations in transit, actually doesn't include China because it looks at governance issues uh, in the former uh, communist and, and Soviet Union countries. But one of the findings from the 2020 um, report for nations in transit was that China came up as a real um, fairly new actor in the region that's really affecting governance there. And I think in a lot of cases, these are countries that have 
poor levels of democratic governance anyway, but where China's, um, but where China's uh, impact uh, is reinforcing uh, some of those bad habits um, and authoritarian tendencies. And that came up, especially when we're talking about things like surveillance equipment. But I think, again, this element of where the corrupt, potentially corrupting influence of, of some of the, the, the Chinese uh, investment uh, in, in the region, that, that it also tends to affect governance there. Yeah, it's remarkable. I, I looked at the Freedom on the Net report before hopping on here, and I was really amazed that they got such a low score of 10. But, you know, studying China, I, I shouldn't be amazed at all because it's just incredible how the CCP has really shut down freedom um, of expression and, and even access, as you alluded to. Um, so when it comes to the Chinese Communist Party's influence over the media, what keeps you up at night? What are you most worried about in terms of Chinese foreign influence over the U.S. media landscape? So that's a very good question. I really had to give that some thought. Um, <laughs> I think there, there were three things specifically, I would say, to the media space and then one that's not necessarily in the media but is in the information space that, that, that I, I thought about. I think one is this question of the economic relationships and this kind of behind-the-scenes potential for co-optation and for censorship and self-censorship that can be so hard to detect, but that can, you know, uh, appear in nuanced ways and where, um, you know, and in some cases, you know, it might not happen at the biggest news outlets. So sometimes because we see, you know, quite critical coverage of China, but maybe it appears in terms of how certain issues in China are covered or not. But maybe it happens at the local level where you saw there was one example recently, I think it was of a radio station in Las Vegas that had created some kind of partnership with like Huawei, and that was maybe affecting their news reporting. So I think it's really all of these different types of uh, economic relationships that are so much more difficult to document, but that you sometimes you just look at something, and you kind of have a hunch that there may be something behind the scenes, uh, you know, uh, having, having an impact there. And certainly if we look at it in terms of the statements and documents that the Chinese government and Communist Party have, you know, internal leaked ones or not leaked ones, even public ones, like in terms of really being able to, you know, gain a foothold and uh, be able to, again, that, that economic leverage uh, and impact and ownership uh, is, is one of the things that I think they very much have in mind. Um, I think related to that is the Chinese language media landscape, because I think that's one of the places where there's been the most... Um, notable uh, impact over the last 20 or 30 years. And I think it's really flown under the radar and there's a real underappreciation for the impact that that has actually on Chinese Americans and the information that they have. And that includes the role that WeChat plays in amplifying um, some of those impact, that impact and, and control. So I think that's another area that, that would benefit from, from more attention because we've seen again and again how the playbook that's applied to the Chinese language space is then um, also used in, in other language spaces, um, you know, say in English or, or, or other elements. Um, and then, and then I think the, you know, I think the other element is, which is related to that. And that's the way in which you see kind of the C C Chinese state media content or narratives, you know, sometimes seeping into the mainstream or seeping into um, you know, some of the publications where they're talking about, say, you know, in inserts and, and the like. Um, I think the flip side is that one of the things that also came out in our report in 2020 is that there's actually so much more awareness and attention to this. 
I'd say especially in the United States, but not only, I think in terms of Australia, in terms of parts of Europe, there's just much greater awareness now. And I think you're starting to see a more pushback and more regulation. And, and sometimes I think it's really a challenge to figure out how to balance that with, you know, freedom of speech and democratic standards. So, you know, an outright ban on WeChat, WeChat, as we're seeing in some of the court cases, you know, may not be, is not appropriate or, or may not be constitutional, but there are other things that maybe could be done in terms of limiting, um, you know, the, the ability uh, of that particular platform, for example, to censor its users in the United States um, or to influence those conversations that Chinese Americans are having, or in some cases that American politicians or Australian politicians or, or Canadian politicians are actually trying to have with their own constituents. And we've seen examples of those being censored. Um, so I think the pushback is like the happy part and trying to see how do you, um, uh, how, how do you take the next step of, of really trying to have a more coordinated uh, and strategic uh, response to some of these controls. Um, and I think the last thing I would say that does concern me when I look at just general CCP influence in the U.S. information space are actually Confucius classrooms. Um, because I think Confucius institutes have gotten a lot of attention, and rightfully so. But Confucius classrooms are kind of the K-12 through spinoff. There are actually more of them than there are Confucius institutes. There are 500. There were 500, I think, at last count. There was some of the Confucius Institute closures that may have gone down. And I first noticed it. When I saw news about, I think it was some immersion program, I think it was in Arizona, starting in kindergarten, that was going to be run by a Confucius um, classroom mm. program. <laughs> and I, I'm the mother of a, well, then she was in kindergarten, now she's six years old, you know, who's learning Chinese, definitely not in the context of a Confucius classroom. <laughs> but I think thinking about, and I think this gets to the broader point of like, I think the local authorities in a lot of parts of the United States are just even less equipped to deal with these kinds of influences than at the national level or at the federal level. So then you start to see maybe some action at the national level and greater awareness, um, but just much more vulnerability, you know, at the state or at the local school district level. And I think when you look, and I haven't had a chance to do a full investigation into this, but actually when you look at the conclusive class, classroom situation, it's also partly been because of the influence that the Chinese embassy, and other Chinese actors, Hanban, that runs the Confucius uh, Institutes, have been able to have within the infrastructure of foreign language instruction in the United States through some of the relevant associations, through some of the Chinese language conferences. And I think it's just really flown below the radar. And on the one hand, you have a real demand in the United States for people and for kids and for parents who want their kids to learn Chinese. But I think actually the Confucius classrooms have, have perhaps captured a larger proportion of that market uh, than we really know and understand. So that's one of the things, again, as the mother of a young child who's learning Chinese that I think about, you know, uh, yeah, what that might mean for the next generation, say, of China watchers, you know, in the United States and or other uh, people who engage with China, um, you know, who first encountered China uh, through a, a teacher who was vetted by the Chinese Communist Party and given specific extensions of what they can and cannot talk about if we're talking about Hong Kong or Tibet or Falun Gong or any other issue that the Chinese government really doesn't want people to know about. Wow. You know, I think um, all of those areas of concern that you highlighted just demonstrate the importance of being really well educated about the different 
threats that are posed by the Chinese Communist Party. And I think it makes, you know, data-driven collection of information even more important. Can you highlight some of the unique challenges that are at play when it comes to collecting data on China or the Chinese government's practices? And are there any challenges you think differ from traditional data collection, especially as it relates to the Chinese Communist Party's use of soft power? So that's an interesting, and I think I'm actually going to answer it first in a positive way, because I think one of the things that's also underappreciated, especially actually in the internet age, is how much information you can find on Chinese internet. Um, and this maybe sometimes relates more to what's happening within China. But when we were doing the religious freedom report, you know, you have to figure, you have to overcome it because like you can't go into the new databases of court verdicts and just look like for Xinjiang or Tibet or Falun Gong. Right. But what we were able to do is, for example, if you go in and you look for the provision, the wording of the legal provision, that particular communities like Falun Gong practitioners or like um, uh, some some Christian groups that are persecuted in China, that they're often sentenced other. Then we were able to find all of these court verdicts that, you know, that that we could then go through and mine. Now, then that brings up other obstacles, because actually, if you want to try to do like scrape the data, they actually were, were the, the computer program where we worked with, there were a lot of obstacles. And I think there may be more now. Mm-hmm. This was back in 2016. There are a lot of obstacles that uh, the Chinese government does put, especially in the, in, towards foreign researchers, um, uh, to be able to access some of this kind of data. And then, of course, once you have all of that, that mountain of, of say, court verdicts, being able to actually have the resources, I mean, we were able to really look through closely and code you know, in any significant way, a fair fraction of them. But, you know, we were able to see and, and say, oh, well, there were 900, you know, Falun Gong practitioners during this period of time that were sentenced to prison. There were 400 members of kind of quasi-Christian groups that were, were sentenced to prison. Um, but, you know, what, what, you know, so there's that resource question. But I think in terms of the obstacles of the Chinese government, and I've heard that there have been some databases now that will require, say, a national ID, a Chinese national ID. So then you're in a situation where you might need to have a Chinese national help you and and of course, then that becomes much more risky for people. So I think the Chinese government does try to put a lid and limit how, how much foreigners can access some of this data. But I think whether it's the, the, those kinds of databases like Verdict um, or it's databases of some of the procurements that we've seen um, or some of the other that, that Adrian Zenz has used. But I also have done did, did some work with someone where we were looking at, um, you know, um, uh, databases for, quote, monitoring key populations um, that were being used. And again, the procurement documents. And you'd be surprised when they, when whether it's the local security officials who are talking about how they succeed in cracking down on this and that, or you're talking about Chinese companies who are advertising how much capability they have and are showing screenshots of like the database, like actually how forthcoming they are. And I think, and candid, they are about what they're doing. Um, I think there is actually a lot of that kind of information that uh, can be really valuable in finding out what's actually really happening on the ground in China. I, I think, you know, when you're talking about the foreign influence, that's a little bit tricky. I mean, one is there's certainly, and Rush Doshi has done some really great work on this. I think if you look at some of the speeches, again, incredible amounts of candor um, in terms of what the president or the director of China Radio International is saying about the particular ambitions. Um, you know, what is being published in major party journals about and then how that's actually, and you actually see that, you kind of see how that's actually playing out. Um, but I, I think other challenges relate to when you're talking about the global influence is that and you're trying to see what's actually happening in different countries. 
um, is a different kind of linguistic problem because you're talking about what's happening in so many different countries. So you've got things happening in Italian and you may be having something happening in Serbian and French and Spanish and Hebrew. And, um, and so one of the things that um, one of the things with this new project at Freedom House that we're hoping to, we're going to be working on is to try to close that gap by creating a methodology that does allow some kind of semi-numerical score or status in terms of the footprint that uh, China and Chinese Communist Party-related actors have on the media environment in a particular country, as well as the resilience to try to gauge that pushback and best practice element in terms of how to respond to this, um, you know, but then also working, trying to work with people in different countries who have that type of knowledge um, to be able, so they can talk to journalists who've gone on some of the junkets to China, um, you know, or look at what's actually being published. Because we know now, for example, in Italian, uh, one of the major, um, I think, uh, newswires is actually running a bunch of Xinhua content. So it's in Italian. So, you know, kind of really looking and being able to trace in the local languages where some of that content ends up um, and trying to gauge really where, where are the most, you know, problematic areas of influence and impact. So that's one of the things we're hoping. It's going to be a while, at least a year, <laughs> until we have a data set like that. But I think when you're looking at you know, again, the global, I think there's different challenges when you're talking about being able to get a better understanding for what the CCP is doing inside China, um, as opposed to, you know, benefits and challenges to uh, what's happening outside of China in terms of the CCP's media influence. Sarah, you're like increasing our anticipation for this new report <laughs> and new data set to come out. It really sounds like it would be so great. And I also thought it was, uh, you know, every time that we have this podcast, I, I ask about difficulties um, to accessing Chinese data and researching it. And this is the first I've heard of this requirement for a national ID card in order to access certain databases. That seems incredibly problematic and hopefully will not be the way of the future, but you just never know um, when you're dealing in this space. Um, Next question, have you received any reaction or responses from the Chinese government to Freedom Houses or even your own research and findings? So to be honest, I haven't necessarily received a direct response, but when our reports come out, including the Beijing's Global Megaphone, um, you know, journalists, some of the foreign correspondents in China will ask the foreign ministry. And it's actually quite interesting because I think they're less responsive when it's like, say, major U.S. media but actually an Indian journalist, I think from the Hindustan Times, asked them about it. So I think then the foreign ministry felt a bit more compelled to respond. Um, and, and of course, they just pretty much dismissed it out of hand as like anti-China, blah, 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 um, you know, without actually really looking at, you know, what the concerns, um, what the concerns are, um, you know, or what the, the evidence that, that it's based on, um, you know, is really looking at. So I think there's just been some of those kinds of, you know, dismissive, um, responses, which is which is what you know, I think groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty will will get as well. But you kind of know they've had to see it if they have to respond. So at least we know that they saw it. Um, and then I think the other thing that you know has happened over the last year is that Freedom House has been quote listed as a quote sanctioned organization. Mm, so it's not really quite clear what that means. And even our president Mike Abramowitz was was singled out, you know, by name. Um, I, I think for the most part that actually. Well, I think there's two elements to that. One, I think it has more to do with some of our advocacy and outspokenness with regards to the protests in Hong Kong, um, as opposed to, I don't think I can really take credit for it. I think the credit belongs more to our advocacy team, as opposed to some of this type of research, but you never know. Um, and then I think the other is just this kind of reciprocal quid pro quo, where the United States 
um, you know, rightfully sanctioned officials in China and Hong Kong over passage of the national security law. So then the Chinese government decided, well, we're going to, quote, sanction some Americans that we see as, you know, um, undermining our <laughs> rule um, or our credibility, legitimacy, however you want to say, and supporting human rights and democracy in Hong Kong and China. And so then, you know, Freedom House earned a badge of honor on that list. But I don't know that, again, we can necessarily fully take credit for anything that we or I certainly have done to, to warrant that. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. A badge of honor um, yeah. for being sanctioned. That's crazy. Um, so many of our listeners are policymakers themselves, and they might be thinking about additional research projects for their research agenda. What aspects of media freedom, if any, are, in your opinion, under-researched and may be ripe for future data-driven projects? So would this be inside China or outside of China? Because I think the answer would be a little bit different if uh, depending on that. I think either. Okay. I, I think inside China, again, I actually think there are still a lot of court verdicts out there and really going through and being able to categorize them and identify them, especially if you're talking more broadly about freedom of expression and not strictly. I mean, CPD does a really good job in terms of kind of more the professional journalists or the well-known, um, uh, the really well-known uh, activists and, and human rights is people running websites and, and they, you know, China has the largest contingent of, of people on the CP, the community to protect journalists list. But again, I think when, especially when we're looking, whether, when, whether you're looking at, when we're looking in the China media bulletin and in the freedom on the net research at specific examples of like WeChat, um, group moderator who was translating content or sharing content from outside the firewall in the WeChat group and got detained and I think sentenced a couple of years in prison. Um, or that local, uh, or uh, I think there was a fellow recently was sentenced like seven years in prison because of um, un, you know unofficial Bibles. Um, or the local Falun Gong practitioner who gets sentenced because they're handing out tools for jumping the firewall or or information about human rights abuses happening to members of their community. So um, I, I think all of those actually fall beneath the radar. But I think from what I think, whether it's kind of aggregating some of the information that you see in you know sources like Radio Free Asia or other human rights groups, um, or some of these types of court verdicts, um, I think there's some information there that would be ripe for some really serious uh, you know review because I think if you can get the court verdicts, there's actually a lot of information that comes out. One of the, some of the things you find, especially in terms of not just who the person is or what they were sentenced for, because I think sometimes it's counterintuitive. And one of the things we found is that a lot of the people who were religious believers were actually being published for what I would call freedom of expression violation. They had downloaded information from the other part side of the firewall and were sharing it online or offline. Um, or things like that, as opposed to necessarily strictly because they were always just simply following and practicing their faith. Um, so I think that's one. I think the other is just the information that you actually learn about how some of the surveillance technology is being used, for example, to actually track and identify people. So what is the actual evidence that be, that's being cited? And sometimes you can tell that it's something that actually came off of a person's computer. But sometimes it was very clear that this was from like, you know, a facial recognition video or some other kind of video footage from a bus or outside of a supermarket or something along those lines. So I think it actually can give some really useful information about how uh, some of these technologies are actually being used to, to detain people. Um, so I'd say that would be inside of China. I think outside of China, um, it's much tricky. I mean, I think certainly these, these elements related to like mapping ownership and monitoring ownership, because you kind of can start to see 
where that's having more and more of an impact. And maybe that's not so much of a data issue, but definitely uh, ripe for research. So just one example I came across recently, it relates to a Portuguese media outlet that there was a, a, a fellow from Macau, a businessman who bought a pretty notable stake. Um, and then actually since then, he's become a member of the National People's Congress. So that like shows you kind of the politicization of some of these businessmen, uh, Chinese or other businessmen, um, you know, who are purchasing stakes in overseas media. And then actually that media group is kind of being used to launch a platform that has much broader implications in terms of um, Portuguese language um, markets. So it was, they were looking for partnerships in Brazil, partnerships in Mozambique. So I think that's definitely one of the ways that like, that captures so many of the like up and coming trends, that one example, from media ownership stakes to linguistic expansion that we're seeing in this space. And that I think there are probably a lot more examples of that than, um, you know, that, that then we're aware of. Um, so again, that's not so much data, but definitely in terms of mapping some of these ownership changes that might be happening in different countries. Mm, that's great. Um, so to close this out, I love to ask our podcast guests what action they would like to see in response to the findings of your research and your reports. What do you think are some of the most effective ways that policymakers can really make the best use of your data? So first, I think in terms of like the U.S. context and um, I think actual in, in the context of data, actually, the Foreign Agents Registration Act is really important. Um, because it does force a level of transparency. And I think the application of it, even where it should really probably be applied, whether it's Chinese state media or other Chinese language media, or even the actual reporting that is being done um, by the media outlets that are registered, um, I think, you know, is, is really under enforced. And so if you look, for example, and we're, but we're starting to see changes and we're starting to see how those changes have an impact. So I would say, for example, if you look at China Daily, which is really the only major Chinese state media outlet with a wide reach in the United States, especially through some of the paid supplements that's been registered under FARA for some for an extended period of time. Um, one of the things I did for the Beijing Global Megaphone report was I actually went through their annual or the biannual, like the every six months submissions uh, to look at how much money they were spending. And you absolutely see a huge jump, like a 10 times jump. Um, around the period of like 2009 or 2012, 2009, 2012, when the Chinese government was amplifying its, its budgeting and expenditures, um, you know, for Chinese state media to expand their reach. Um, so one, that was like really useful data to be able to basically create a graph and people can see that in the report of how much um, is being spent. And, you know, over a period of a decade, it comes out, it was something like 10 to 15 million a year. So it comes out over $100 million over the period of a decade. But I think one of the things that was lacking was actually the breakdown of how those funds are being spent. And I don't know exactly what prompted, um, you know, it might have been our report, <laughs> it might have been other, you know, thinking at the DOJ and in the FARA group, uh, in the FARA department, to basically push China Daily to be more transparent. And so one of the more recent reports had a much more itemized list of expenditure of where that money was going and particularly which news outlets were receiving funding to, to publish the China Watch supplement um, in their papers. Um, and, and actually it came out that, I, I forget, it was like the Washington Post, I think in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, were receiving between half a million to a million or something along those lines per year. And I think that actually created quite a bit of pressure. And we don't know exactly why, because the outlets haven't been fully forthcoming. But basically since that time, and I think, related to other elements of, of awareness, greater awareness about 
the problems involved in the content in some of these supplements. Uh, we've seen the New York Times and the Washington Post both discontinue um, these supplements, both in the print edition and online. And I think that's actually a major victory. And I think it's one of the ways in which that type of transparency can be really useful. Now, the interesting thing is that I think CGTN has been required to register, but I don't know if they've had any more filings. The Chinese language CCTV, which is huge market share in the United States, is not registered under FARA. Um, you know, Xinhua News, I think there was an effort to get it registered, but I'm not sure if they fully complied. So one of the things that the State Department has done, I think, in the interim has been to apply this um, uh, foreign missions uh, designation, which I think is helpful in terms of enhancing transparency for those who interact with some of these media outlets to, to have a better sense that they are really closely aligned with the Chinese government and Communist Party. Um, I think the level of reporting, I think, is mostly internal maybe to the State Department because it's kind of diplomatic communications as opposed to the level of transparency that comes from FARA filings. So I think there's still that element of really seeing how to appropriately, you know, you don't want to go overboard. You don't want to have a Chinese diaspora outlet that has tangential ties, you know, to the Chinese government has attended a training or something like that at one point being necessarily designated as a foreign agent. But certainly in terms of uh, some outlets, you know, both Chinese state media owned, but also ones like Phoenix Television that have a really strong reach in the Chinese language community in the United States, those seem like it would be appropriate to have them registered under FARA. And then that can create a whole level of data to really look and get a better understanding of what the reach is. So I think that's, that's definitely one area where we've seen some movement and impact, but, but more, more could be done. Um, and then I think, you know, I think just in general, in terms of this question of, um, you know, of, of, of transparency surrounding these activities and surrounding reporting requirements really does I think in a democratic society like the United States, it really does create an important uh, buffer uh, and, and protection in terms of the actual way in which some of this type of influence can, can manifest and, and can actually have an impact. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today. This was just so great to be able to learn more about the state of media freedom and the ways in which China is using soft power or sharp power or the more distinctive ways that you described it. So we're so grateful um, to have you join us and are looking forward to engaging with you again in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It was really, some of your questions are really interesting. They're not ones I necessarily always think about and answer. So it's always a useful thought process that way too. Thank you so much, Sarah, for lending insight into the state of media freedom in China. This is such an important subject for China watchers, as well as for laypersons, to just really be made more aware of. So we're super grateful to you for your disciplined work and your study of China, and that our listeners had the opportunity to learn from your expertise. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to our fourth episode of China Uncovered, a podcast dedicated to pulling back the veil on the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. In two weeks from now, we're going to be bringing you another episode of China Uncovered on the Chinese Communist Party's control over China's financial sector. Subscribe to China Uncovered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're looking forward to seeing you next time. China Uncovered is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.